Bonjour, je m'appelle Sandrine. Hola, me llamo Krista. Welcome to Step Into Mondays, the podcast where we discuss teaching languages and bridge the theory to practice. So, did you miss me? Did you miss me? <laughs> oh, I've missed you, Sandrine. <laughs> This is the Sandrine show, forget Krista. <laughs> My, my brain was so far ahead of my mouth that, <laughs> you know what, it's all good. We've all got it going on these days. We're all nuts. So I was going to say, so guys, did you miss us in the last couple of weeks? Did you catch up on past episodes? Or were you like us, so completely behind that you were like, thank God there's not a new episode for me to listen to? <laughs> Right, exactly. Exactly. <coughs> Excuse me. So. I am so behind on listening to all of my podcasts. I'm two to three weeks behind. So I'm like, oh. look, I'm behind on everything because I know our listeners probably don't know, but I had COVID. So, you know, it takes one unvaccinated person. I I'm vaccinated and I'm so glad because I apparently had a light case. And if what I had was a light case, I would hate to know what, uh, you know, a bad case really was. So uh, I was in quarantine and just, I felt really, really bad for about four days. And then it's just been complete exhaustion and just wanting to sleep all the time. I mean, I did. And of course it was right when classes started, you know, Murphy's law, right? And so I taught my one hour class and then on Zoom, and then I would have to take a three hour nap because it was so exhausting. I mean, you know, I don't have COVID and I feel like that. Yes, but you, you got a little bit more excuse than I do. So, so actually my small victory is that whew, I survived COVID, which is actually a big victory, but you That's know, pretty big victory. Yeah. Yeah. So that is my small, my small victory. And, and so far, knock on wood, my family seems to have avoided it. Although I'm going to tell you the worst part. I mean, anybody who, who listens and who knows me knows that I am a people person, right? I'm extroverted. And so they locked me in, you know, one of the other bedrooms, my son's bedroom, since he's at college. And I mean, my daughter wouldn't even, she would like, stand outside the door. Hey mom, this happened at school today. She wouldn't open the door or anything. I mean, I was like, oh, it was terrible. The isolation. <laughs> so really it wasn't being sick. It was the isolation. Isolation with you. <laughs> it was harder for me. Well, now I will tell you those four days that I had fever and chills. I didn't care where I was. I was miserable. But once I started, you know, feeling better, Yeah, the isolation was the worst. Part. <laughs> It really was. That and the that. lesson of that, people, if you are like Krista and you're the big social butterfly, don't get COVID. That's right. Don't wear your mask, <laughs> get your shots, and do everything. If you're like me, you're like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> You'd be perfectly fine. Yeah. I can take it or leave it. <laughs> 
Exactly, exactly. So, so that's my small victory. I survived the isolation and COVID. What about you, Chick? My small victory is slightly actually out of my hands, but yes and no. But I, after three weeks of work, finally have my official school ID. I finally have my school badge. So I don't have to walk around school with the badge that says substitute teacher. So I can get in and out of the building <laughs> and I can get in classrooms because it's like, you know, it, it has the, and I can make copies just by scanning my card because it has uh, chips in them. <clears throat> uh-huh. So, yeah, so that's, but I mean, it took for me begging and crying and moaning and looking pitiful. And finally on Friday, somebody was like, okay, well, go ahead and contact so-and-so. And was like, okay. So I finally got that one. So that's one of my small victory. Well, that's great. Awesome. Awesome. But, you know, I was going to say, as we made the joke on you, the isolation, as I'm now back in school, I'm like, you know what, for a year and a half, I was at home. And here I went and threw myself in the lion's mouth because I'm in an elementary school surrounded by people. So who knows what we'll get, but um, I have missed being around people a bit. It's so nice to be in touch with people and talking to people. So, yeah, you know, being in this small space, having a team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So what is our topic today? Well, we have a very special guest that we're super excited about, um, who is going to talk to us about heritage language learning. Um, That is a really important topic. And so we have a um, Spanish professor from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champlain, Dr. Florencia Hinshaw, who is going to uh, give us all of her wisdom about heritage language learners. Cannot wait. That is such an interesting topic to me. Mm-hmm. that we do not talk about enough all right so let's jump into that well good morning and welcome uh we have a special guest today um dr florencia henshaw uh, she has a phd in second language acquisition and teacher education from the university of illinois at urbana champaign um, where she is director of the advanced spanish program She has taught 19 different undergraduate and graduate courses and designed eight online courses. Um, Dr. Henshaw has published and presented nationally and internationally on technology integration, heritage language instruction, and research-based pedagogy. Um, She recently launched a YouTube channel called Unpacking Language Pedagogy and has a book coming out in the spring called Common Ground Second Language Acquisition Theory Goes to the Classroom that um, she has co-authored with Maris Hawkins. So we are super excited to have her with us today to talk about heritage language learning. So welcome, Florencia. Yes, welcome. When do you sleep? (laughs) Well, first of all, thank you. Thank you for that nice introduction. Thank you, Sandrine. Thank you, Krista, for having me. Um, I'm very, very excited to be chatting with you. Um, I actually sleep a lot. And if I don't get my eight to nine hours of sleep every night, I cannot function. So I've been known to sleep maybe 10 hours a night. Okay. Uh, 
I like to sleep, but then um, you know, I I I usually say that I am like a Jack Russell Terrier. Like I cannot <laughs> be sitting down doing nothing. I do that from time to time, but I need projects. What's next? What's next? Let's do this. Like I have. So my... you're either on or off. That's what you're telling us. <laughs> yes, pretty <laughs> much. Pretty no. much. That, that would be an accurate representation. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. Well, let's jump into that. Let's start. That's one of the first questions we ask our guests, because Krista and I have such different backgrounds on that one. We love to hear about it. How did you come about teaching languages? That's a good question. So um, I, I was born and raised in Buenos Aires, Argentina. I did the first year of college in Argentina and I was studying to become a nutritionist. Um, and to become a nutritionist, you have to do essentially many of the same courses as um, School of Medicine. Um, and so I did the first year where I did a lot of biochemistry, anatomy, physiology, all of that stuff. Um, and then I met an American boy uh, and so I fell in love and when he came back to the U.S. I came back with him and when I got here my major in college community college was biology because I thought I was going to continue with the same thing and after about a semester I realized oh we had an interruption go ahead it's all good so after about um, a semester, I realized that a lot of Americans wanted to learn Spanish. And to me, that was a revelation. I was like, really? People want to learn Spanish? Um, and so I started looking into what would it would take to become a Spanish teacher. And um, after um, several years, um, you know, when I was doing my BA, um, I convinced myself for <laughs> thanks to the encouragement of others that I could potentially go for a master's and a PhD. And I um, ended up at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and I, I have been here ever since and I love it. I love that because I never thought I would be a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> oh no I did I was and I always tell my students when I was a little girl playing with my toys I would teach them math I would teach wow. them equations like that level of nerdiness that's me yeah I always wanted to teach okay so you you kind of had it okay yep. so you're the middle ground between me and Krista <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay. she always knew she knew she was going to teach didn't know what I resisted with every fiber of my being because I hated learning English and yeah well yeah so if we're going to talk about learning English that is true um when <laughs> I was a when I was a teenager and my parents um made me take English classes in Argentina um after a year I said this language is stupid I will never use it I don't need to know it so I'm done this is not <laughs> happening and so I quit I didn't want to learn English uh and here I am so yeah Mm -hmm. I, I, what, what ended up happening is that a lot of the sitcoms that we would get in Argentina were from the United States, like Friends, Seinfeld, The Nanny. I know I'm dating myself here, but that's what I grew up with. Those were my English teachers. And so I, I just 
fell in love with American English. And so that I said, okay, I'll learn American English. Mm. So you actually did learn it, just not through school. Not through school, no. Um, I mean, the, the one year and a half maybe that I did British English, because mm. that's the, like what we learn in Argentina, at least back then. Um, it was very much like just some book of lists, some dialogues. Mm. Um, I, I don't remember learning a whole lot. Um, not <laughs> the, the, the teacher I had, the tutor I had was great. So it's not her fault. You know, it was just this thing that I was forced to do and I wasn't into it and I don't remember a whole lot. But once I started watching TV shows and listening to music in English, and from there, it got in my head to the point that I was thinking in English. Um, and so I just, it, it didn't stop. Yeah. So I kind of learned it that way. I love that. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and probably, I mean, more effective, really. Yeah. <laughs> True. But I mean, I don't, I'm not advocating for, hey, everybody, let's quit our jobs and just have students watch TV. I'm not advocating for that. I, I think it's just my case. It's just, yes, a lot of input that was comprehensible because of subtitles mm -hmm. um, and so much exposure to it because I would watch even the reruns. And even when I knew them by heart, I would watch them again. Right. And I know that's not, and then I moved to the US where I am surrounded by English 24 seven. So mm -hmm. it's not a typical case. Uh, right, no. <laughs> let's, just, let's just put it out there. <laughs> but you know, I think a lot of times, I mean, a lot of us language teachers come to the profess profession, not through the normal, you know, path or whatever we just kind of maybe fall into it I don't know but it just seems like the more people we talk to <laughs> at the very happens. least I do tell my students my story because there's something to it right when you become so passionate about the language that you want to be surrounded by the language mm -hmm. every day and you seek it right that you keep watching tv shows that you all you listen to is music in that language I think it's really, really, really good for acquisition, right? So I, I, there's definitely something there. I'm not saying it wouldn't work for someone else, but I understand also the value of attending classes. So I'm not, I'm not saying that classes are not necessary. No, absolutely. We, we totally get that. And so one of the things that um, we actually have been talking about is is heritage language learners. And I know that that is a, a big issue. It was uh, a huge topic at AATSP um, this summer. And um, the Dimension, which is the Southern Conference on Language Teachings um, uh, journal actually has an entire uh, issue devoted to heritage language learning. So if any of you are, are interested in that, you can check out um, the Dimension uh, episode, um, issue. But one of the first things I think that we need to do for people um, is maybe define what a native speaker, a heritage speaker, and a second language speaker are. What, what is the difference? Um, that is a good question. There's been several articles published about it. There's not a one definition. There's not a one size fits all. But I do think it's important to keep in mind what terminology we use with our students in research among us 
we can debate the terms and, and, and come to terms with this is what I'm going to call them. Okay. But when we're talking with the students, I think the terms really matter because of the messages that we may be sending with these different terms. And mm -hmm. so in the literature, um, the definition by Guadalupe Valdez is probably the most frequently cited one. And her definition is, I'm going to paraphrase a lot here, but essentially a person who grew up speaking the so-called minority language, meaning a language that exists in that country, but has fewer speakers relative to the majority language or the language spoken by most people in a country mm -hmm. or in that community. And so a lot of uh, heritage speakers grew up uh, bilingually, right, that they had the language at home, but also the language of the community or the majority language. Mm -hmm. um, and then Valdez leaves it pretty open in terms of their abilities. It says that they are to a certain extent or to a certain degree bilingual. <laughs> and that means that some of them may only be able to understand spoken language. Um, some of them might be able to speak, but not write. Uh, and some of them might be able to do everything in both languages. So um, the, the, the big question is <laughs> heritage versus native. And my um, issue with that distinction, I understand it from a research point of view. Um, I understand it when we're thinking about perhaps uh, courses, but when I'm talking with my students, and they are heritage learners because they grew up with both, in my case, Spanish and English at home. Mm -hmm. I tell them that they are native speakers because to me, a native speaker is somebody who grew up speaking the language. It has nothing to do with schooling in the language. It has nothing to do with being monolingual or not. There are plenty of native speakers of more than one language. So um, I, I consider them native speakers. Uh, so are they the same, the exact same um, as somebody who grew up monolingual for 20 plus years uh, in another country? No, uh, but to me, that comparison is pointless. <laughs> Why am I trying to compare a bilingual speaker to a monolingual speaker? Yes, I know that is going to be different and mm -hmm. like can we just move on like why do we come be it feels like a lot of the times we're comparing them to this native speaker that is somehow superior to a heritage speaker and so that's the main reason why i reject the classification in into these tiers it feels like they're mm -hmm. tiers right you have the second language the heritage and the native like you've yes. arrived somewhere like it says it, it doesn't work that way I'm right. so glad you're bringing that native speaker thing because I have such a big issue with that one because, um, and we've said it on the show before, what is a native speaker, right? We've always said it, you go to Walmart and listen to the people talking, and then you go to, I don't know, a university, listen to the people talking, they're going to be native speakers, but the level of speech is not the same. Right. right. I think um, in terms of so proficiency level, right, and even when you look at the actual scale, there's no native, right? right. So native speaker is not a proficiency level. And so right. I think we need to start stop confusing, confounding all these terms where now we're mm -hmm. thinking of schooling, we're thinking of proficiency, we're thinking of monolingualism. 
I think we're putting all together in the same bag and it's not all the same. And so um, to me, the way that I talk to my students and I tell them, you are a native speaker to me is because you grew up speaking the language at home. Right. Like it's just to me, it's like that is a native speaker, it has nothing to, to do with whether you got uh, to go to school in that language or not. And you know, school systems have a big issue with that. I saw it with my own kids because when they went to elementary school, I would get every year early questionnaire and I'm sure all the students would get it. What is the first language your child learned at home? Well, my children learned both French and English at the same time. Right. They had both words, especially my daughter, my firstborn. Her first word was a French word, but then she would have a mixed pattern. She didn't know the difference. She picked up words and said them, right? And so I would have that. And then they would send it back and go, okay, so she needs support with English classes. And I'd be like, have you talked to my child? She speaks better English than half of the students you have in your classrooms. Mm -hmm. And she comprehends French and is able to put a few sentences together. No, she doesn't need that. So that forced me to stop putting on those things that she knew French. Because oh. immediately they had that, oh, heritage learner can do English. Let's fix that. Well, but that it just it goes back to this perception that monolinguals are somehow better. Yeah. <laughs> and I know that a lot of what we see as language teachers on social media is all about bilingualism as a superpower, right? And bilingualism <laughs> is great. And then in society, a lot of the times monolinguals are viewed as more complete than right. bilinguals. And it's just we need to fight those that way of perceiving monolingualism and bilingualism. And it's, Just, it's, yeah. it, it's actually still that way. I know um, I have a friend and their child is learning Russian and English because the mother is Russian and they had the same issue. They had mm -hmm. the same exact issue that, that Sandrine just um, mentioned. And so that that is rather frustrating. But again, I think it comes from perhaps a lack of understanding of, of what we're talking about today and what all of the terms are. But I was also wondering, and, and I mean, maybe it's just me and where I live, but I think that there are some stereotypes as well about heritage speakers. They don't know how to read and write well. They don't know how to spell anything. They don't know, I mean, you know, I mean, you just hear all of these things and it's like, well, all they can do is speak to their family or you know, whatever, they still need to start in Spanish one so they can learn the correct grammar mm -hmm. and, you know, all those kind of things. So, you know, what, what is your, what are your thoughts on those kinds of stereotypes? I mean, are any of them true? So, oof, I have a lot of thoughts about it. Um, so <laughs> one thought I have it, I have is that Unfortunately, a lot of these negative stereotypes have been internalized by our, our learners, by their families sometimes too, um, that you know they don't speak correct Spanish, that they don't know how to write, that they don't know how to spell, that they don't know the grammar. Mm -hmm. um, and I think part of it is um, sort of uh, helping them understand language development and the, what they bring to class, uh, which is a lot. And it, it, let's just look at spelling because I'm always fascinated by spelling and how people are, you know, they seem obsessed with heritage speakers cannot spell. So I did a study 
comparing heritage in second language learners who had the same number of Spanish courses that they had taken. So it, it's because what you hear a lot in the literature is the second language learners have a leg up because they took Spanish courses, so they now know how to spell, um, but heritage learners don't because they haven't taken Spanish. Okay, in this study, same number of courses that they had in the spelling errors that heritage learners make versus that second language learners make, because they do make spelling mistakes too, okay. um, they're simply different, right? They're coming from different sides, so to speak. And the heritage learners um, show the same pattern of spelling errors that native speakers, monolingual native speakers, children in school um, show. And that is because we know that their acquisition journey has been different, right? Like they acquire the, the language orally first. The second language learners, they have exposure to the written form early on from the get-go, from day one of their acquisition process. Whereas heritage and native speakers know because we had to hear the language first. We heard the language for a long time first. That's how we acquired it. And then later on, we were introduced to how it's written. In some cases, in other cases, um, they, they may never you know, um, be introduced to written language. Um, so it, it, to me, it's not a matter of, they just don't know how to spell, it's that we are approaching their language development the wrong way, <laughs> right? We need to approach it how we would approach um, monolingual native speakers in a way, because we need to understand that what they need is, um, as Kim Potowski says, more of the language arts programs as opposed to just putting them in Spanish one, which Kim Potowski calls it Buenos Dias Spanish, right? Like we, we cannot be putting them to again, learn how to do greetings and where are you from? Um, or here's the conjugation of present tense. Like it, that simply is not going to help uh, them do what they need to do. But they have internalized this message of you just don't know academic Spanish. You just don't know the grammar. You need to understand the rules. And so even they themselves say, yes, I have to take these classes because I never learned Spanish. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's a lot of changing perceptions and uh, helping them understand language development, helping um, administrators and educators understand what these students need um, and why, why, especially in the beginning, they need different courses. They cannot be in the same courses as Spanish one, two, or three, right? They just, they simply need a different type of instruction because the goals are different and the starting points are different. Mm -hmm. You know, and then they wonder why those kids are so bored in those classes. <laughs> well, right. there are, I mean, and talk about stereotypes and myths, right? The, the big myth or stereotype that they take the classes for an easy A. Mm -hmm. It's just, that is so harmful. I just don't understand that stereotype at all and it doesn't work. Um, yeah, I just, I think that there, there, there need to be a lot of changes happening and um, 
Kim Potowski usually talks about the ESL analogy, right? Like we wouldn't put a native speaker of English in the ESL one, you know, basic course. Uh, that would be an outraged, right, to do mm -hmm. that. And so why are we doing this with Spanish hate speakers? At least Spanish, that's what I'm familiar with. But of mm -hmm. course, there are many more hate speakers than just Spanish. Yeah. Well, I actually had a student um, in my methods course, and you know, they do some little mini lessons for teaching. And so she had her PowerPoint up there and at the top she had the Spanish word and at the bottom she had the English word. And I was like, why? You know, if this is Spanish class, why do you have the English word down there? And she said, oh, that's my English language learner accommodation. And I said, what do you mean? She said, oh, well, my principal put all of this, the Spanish kids in Spanish one with me so they could learn English. Hmm. Interesting. And I said, what? I mean, <laughs> it was just really, it blew my mind. And I was like, what are you talking about? And I, but, and, you know, in his mind, I think, you know, this is where it comes back to, we have to educate our administrators a lot. Um, in his mind, what do you do in a language class? You learn the grammar. And so learning the grammar and comparing the Spanish and the English grammar is going to help these students learn English. Whereas we know that if we're teaching Spanish the way it should be taught, they're not going to be speaking English in class. And so that's not really going to help them at all. So, you well, know, I and the, the other thing that I've heard a lot, and this is why, I mean, I think it's, it's so unfair to put teachers in this position, right, where they are just simply told, this is what you have to do, you know, and they have really advanced students here to speakers in Spanish one, and it is incredibly difficult. And so a lot of the times what happens is the Spanish speaker, heritage speaker ends up being like the assistant to the teacher, mm -hmm. right? Like, mm -hmm. just help me, you know, with students, help them practice Spanish, teach them new words. Um, and I, I understand that a lot of teachers say the student enjoys it. I understand that there are some articles that have said that it helps them feel more secure about their skills, but we're ignoring the other articles that are showing that students feel uncomfortable and that it may actually exacerbate their insecurities with the language because sometimes they don't know why we say things a certain way because sometimes they feel unsure about how to say something right. and imagine how you would feel if a classmate who's supposed to be lower level than you asked you how do you say this and you don't know the word Right. It happens to me all the time. I don't know all the words in Spanish, but I am already a secured speaker of Spanish, right? I'm not going to feel bad that I don't know a word, but we're putting students in that position. And for some students to feel like I don't know the word, what is the reaction? Sometimes the reaction could be, oh, are you sure you're a native speaker? Are you sure you know Spanish? Why are we putting our students in that position? And so it, and again, I'm not blaming the teachers. Uh, teachers right. are doing miracles with the constraints that they're given. Oh, it's, just, it's more of a, can we understand it? And then what can we do? Let's help teachers have a good situation, have the tools that they need to help the students, not simply say, well, tell him to help the others, or well, um, you know, they may learn some English. It just, it feels, it doesn't feel well thought out. <laughs> It feels like a band-aid 
and eventually it, it could have negative repercussions. Mm -hmm. You know, and what happens with that too, that I saw with my kids, two different experiences, but my second one, my son, the teacher had the power to move him to French too, but was like, no, I don't want to. So she kept him in French one. Then the whole school year blamed him for being disruptive, where really it was the other students who were like, what is she yapping on about? We have no idea. Tell us what's going on, right? They were the one throwing that at him. So then she would constantly rearrange tables until eventually one day she put him in his own little corner by himself with no one to work with. Completely ostracized him. And he was like, well, I didn't have anybody to talk to. So hopefully she was able to realize I'm not the one who's constantly talking. It's other people because they don't know what's going on. Right. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry to hear that. And, and I have uh, heard. Yeah, I have heard yeah. of sad situations or mm -hmm. um, one um, student told me again. I don't know. This is what a student said. I, I, it's not like I went and verified right. it. Uh, but they told me that they got points taken off for speaking too fast. And, oh, wow. and so, you know, what are we, are we trying, the question is like, are we trying to help them develop and flourish mm -hmm. or are we trying to put them in a specific box and right. controlling their language? And let's just think about that. What do we want to do? And, and the same with learning the rules. I don't even understand where that, where that comes from. I mean, I, I'm, I'm assuming it comes from, you know, the, the more traditional training mm -hmm. and ways of approaching language where you need to know the rules in order to speak it correctly, right? Like that is usually what we've been taught. Um, and we know that plenty of people speak very well and they cannot articulate a single rule that they just used. So right. where, where is this connection? Where is this um, perception that if you know the rules, then you are a more complete speaker? Um, mm -hmm. We need to question that. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. I was going to say the other the other side of that that happened to my other child, my firstborn, she was put in French too, but the teacher expected much more work out of her. And so one activity she had, which I think is horrible, but you know, that's her thing. She loved Buffy the Vampire Slayer and it exists in a French version. So every Friday they would watch an episode. And now that in itself, you know, it could have some pluses, but from French one to French four, that's what they did. And the only thing they did with it is they would wrote, write a certain amount of words that they understood out of the episode. And they just write like 10 words they understood. And that's what they turn in. Well, for my daughter, she decided because she understood French, she needed to write full sentences. Right. And she asked me, she's like, what do you think is an appropriate amount? And I told her, I said, you're the teacher that's your classroom. I'm not telling you how to do your job. I will not be that parent, right? Although I want to step in and tell you how to do your job because I knew she wasn't doing a good job, but still I respected it and was like, your classroom, you do what you want. Well, then my daughter starts getting zeros and I'm like, okay, what is happening here? And she goes, I don't have time to write a full sentence and watch the stupid show. I can't do that. Like, how am I supposed, I'm supposed to write a whole paragraph about that while I'm watching it. And then it ends, we're turning in our papers and that's that. She's like, I don't have time to do that. Yeah. So you know, the expectation was so much higher 
and and you know in that teacher's defense i will i will give her that it's just she didn't have the training because we never talk about these students right it true um and also it's because i hear a lot about well and differentiate mm -hmm. differentiate how I mean, I think a lot of us try, but eventually we create these perceptions that they're being asked to do more work, that they're, I mean, it's just, it's, it's not so straightforward just to differentiated instruction. Uh, you know, that, that, that teacher instinct may have been on the right track that, okay, maybe just simple words are okay for the novice learners, but maybe she can do it. Like, you know, it could be that her instinct was in the right track, but then in reality and practice, it just right. didn't work, right? And so that's where you need to be adjusting. Um, but it is just really difficult. Like, I wish there was a better way of, of helping these students that they're not put into this situation and helping the teacher so the teacher doesn't have to be in these situations either. Mm -hmm. But training, yes, absolutely. Training has to be, it has to be there. I think is is you know way past due for language teacher education programs to have required <laughs> training on uh, heritage speakers. I think um, it shouldn't be an optional. It shouldn't be a certificate that you can do later on. All those initiatives are wonderful, don't get me wrong. But at least for many of the languages, we need to start having more training on heritage speakers mm -hmm. built in within all of the other training that language teacher education implies. Exactly. So what, you know, moving to a little more of the practical. So then what are some practical suggestions for teachers? What, what can someone who has heritage speakers in their classes, what can they do for them? That is a good question. Um, the, the trickiest part of giving concrete suggestions is that we are all working under very, very different circumstances. And it can be anything. It could be from the number of students that you have, because, for example, I've attended many workshops by the wonderful Maria Carrera, and she always starts the workshop saying that you need a critical mass of heritage speakers. That's what she calls it. And that means that if you only have one, the tips that she's giving are not going to be applicable. Mm -hmm. And so what does a teacher do, right? And the other thing is you may have two or three heritage speakers, but what if they have very different abilities in the heritage language? Mm -hmm. um, what about age? What about, can you assign things outside or not? Do you have technology? Is it one-on-one? -on -one? I think there are so many different factors that all of the tips that you hear um, are only partially applicable at best. Mm -hmm. And so the, the main things that I like to keep in mind are, and all of our classes are mixed. Uh, we only have, I did develop a specific section for HR speakers of composition, but that is the only one currently that we have sort of a separate uh, option for HR speakers. All the other ones are mixed. Mm -hmm. um, so I think first and foremost, you have to do your best to place them based on proficiency. And again, I know that's the first hurdle, right? So right off the bat, it could be that that's not an option for you. But at the very least, that should be a consideration, right? You cannot have 
a novice high student with an intermediate high advanced low student. Like there's no sane right. way of teaching that. It's just, it's extremely difficult. So the first thing is to try to group them on proficiency as best as you can. Um, the other is to keep in mind, what does everyone benefit from? So the one thing that we know they all benefit from is input. Uh, and in this particular case, I would say they both benefit from written input, from reading. So reading programs, and especially reading programs where the students can have some flexibility in terms of what they can choose to read, um, are very uh, good for differentiation when you have heritage and so-called second language learners. And then in terms of um, the other modes, um, presentational and interpersonal. Well, I would say for presentational, um, if you're going to have them work together um, and the same, I guess the same could be said for interpersonal, but whenever the students are working together, um, you have to consider more um, then just, you know, the second language learner helps with the grammar and the heritage learner helps with vocabulary or whatever. Um, it goes much more deeper than that. Um, the, the relationship they have, the orientation to task, the attitude they have towards the task, uh, towards helping, whether they want to work with somebody else or they prefer to work alone. I mean, I think that all, all of those things need to be considered to have a good working relationship if you're going to have those mixed groups of second language and heritage language learners working together. If you can group the heritage learners together, um, I think that would be a good way to go. But again, it could be that they don't get along. And so just because they're hater speakers, that doesn't mean that you're going to have a productive group. Uh, so just to keep in mind that it, it, it is not so clear cut that people just tell you, well, pair them up based on whether they're haters or pair them up based on proficiency. Um, a lot of the pair group, um, pair work research keeps showing more and more that it's about peer perceptions, self-perceptions, that there are many more factors that go into how well students work together. Um, and, and, and the last thing that I would say is probably avoid uh, making that heritage speaker um, the helper. <laughs> Just they're, they're one more student. And one of my participants in a study does exactly what they wrote. They wrote, I want to be a student in the class. I don't want to be a tutor. Mm -hmm. And so you have to keep that in mind, even though for you, it may seem like it's a great way to reaffirm their skills. Um, that may not be what is actually happening. And so um, if they want to share, they can share. So just to give an example, in one of our classes, we talk about um, variation, uh, you know, dialectal variation um, in, in La Rae. <laughs> we talked about a lot of things. And so in one activity, um, they have to say like all of the words they know for a particular things like popcorn or cake, or sandwich, uh, truck, right? All of that. So in that space, the learner can offer but if they don't want to, don't point to them and say, hey, how does your family say it? If they don't want to offer it, they don't have to. If they want to offer it, great. Um, if they say troca, which is common in the United States for truck, um, don't say, oh, but that's not a word, right? To just being open and 
giving them that space, which takes time for them to feel comfortable in the class. I think we need to understand that they're not coming in, uh, many of them are not coming in feeling secure of their skills. And even though for you, it may seem like, but they speak so fast and they speak so well, they probably feel like this is too easy. They might be feeling completely different <laughs> on their side. And so I think it's a matter of this developing the, the relationship for them to feel welcome for everybody to feel welcome and to build up their confidence skills for all learners, right? The second language and the heritage language, everybody needs to work on their confidence skills in the language. Um, so I know I gave you a very long answer to your question, but I guess it would be if I have to sum it up, then what does everybody benefit from? Written input, so from reading, um, mm -hmm. from understanding each other, from creating a welcoming environment, building up their confidence everybody benefits from all of those things so just sort of keep working on that um and uh, it's not easy i'm not saying it's easy but um if you know if you can build in other things such as for example maybe in the feedback that you give them yeah maybe the feedback you can maybe push the heritage learners to say a little bit more expand here tell me more about this but maybe the second language learners is more about just adding one word Okay, that's not, it, to me, it doesn't create such a difference in terms of workload, right? Mm -hmm. That they can still do it, nobody feels that it is unfair, right? But again, it's, it's hard, it's hard. These are things that you adjust um, based on your students and your students are going to be different every year. That's absolutely true. So <clears throat> let me just ask you this because, you know, depending on your department and your the criteria and everything. What do you do with, for example, I remember we had this, this was, I don't know, 10 years ago. And there was a student in my class who was arguing with me about K and qual. Okay. And well, you know, and it's K as tu problema. And it's like, well, no, qual as tu problema is the grammatically correct. No, my whole family says K as tu problema. You're wrong. You're not a native speaker. You don't know what you're talking about, you know. And she really went off on me about it. And I was like, well, I can pull out, you know, any textbook and it will show you, you know, all of this kind of stuff. So what do you do with issues like that? I mean, is it, is K as tu problema acceptable now? what what do you do with with issues like that <laughs> okay i wasn't prepared to answer the k versus qual question i i, I don't know exactly what la raya say but um so i used to be way back when i used to be one of those that if somebody says something like um qual película es tu favorita right the, which movie is your favorite Right versus que película is the favorita? What movie is your favorite? Right. And that way back when, I think, La Rai used to have something about like, it should be que película, not cual uh -huh. película. Uh-huh. And so I used to be one of those that would say, La Rai says this, look, look, look. You cannot say it. You're saying it wrong because of English. I used to be one of those. Right. Um, and I had to have my own journey of reflection and understanding of how different people say things differently. And mm -hmm. La Rai doesn't own the language, that the language belongs to the speakers. And I heard more and more speakers say, Qual película? 
And I think eventually Larrae added it as an acceptable way of using qual. Uh-huh. So language changes, and right. I would not, I would never argue with a student about what their family says and whether their family speaks correctly or not. Right. I mean, that would be a discussion that I would never have, and I, I cannot even imagine what that discussion would would look like. Well, um, it wasn't it wasn't pleasant because I was saying, well, no qual, <laughs> and I was explaining the grammar rule, and buddy, she just laid into me and let me have it in front of the whole class, and I was like, so that, you know, to can... me that's it, right? But to me that's a different issue, right? So we can get into the whole KM qual and and right. a long discussion of language change. Um, it, it, to me, that's separate from how do you treat your instructor, professor, or teacher in class? I mean, that's something that is not here to speakers. So everybody should treat each other with respect. Oh, absolutely. So, no, no, yeah. no, I get it. But part of me had wondered if one of the reasons that she reacted so strongly to this is because she didn't feel valued for her language skills as a heritage well, speaker. I mean, I mean, I don't know. It, it's hard to say. I think her reaction is very common among native speakers. She's mm -hmm. a native speaker. Native mm -hmm. speakers have this reaction all the time where somebody says something and then somebody else says, no, that's not how you say it. Because in our heads, we're only going by our dialect and our way of speaking and what we have heard. Yes, mm -hmm. some people is because of what they learn in school and La Rai and all of that. But a lot of us have this reaction of, no, that's not how you say it. that sounds wrong because it sounds wrong to us. Right. So her reaction is the normal common reaction of a native speaker. Uh, right. And so I, I, yeah, I would, I mean, I don't know um, how often that happens. I'm guessing that it may happen uh, in some cases more than others. I would take it as an opportunity for everyone to understand how we have reactions like that as native speakers. The English native speakers may have that reaction in English. And mm -hmm. so let's all talk about how we perceive the uh, variation in linguistics. Let's all talk yeah. about how, why we think that some things sound wrong or not uh, and where those judgments may come from and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think that I would be okay in this particular case with telling the student, oh, great, then yeah, you can use K or Qual here. It's either one, either one is good. Like, to, I would just accept both in this particular case. That would have been like the end of the discussion. And again, right. it's the same way, you know, if they are, um, another example is a ser and estar, and I know estar is much more extended in Mexico than in other dialects, right? It's the mm -hmm. same with, Present perfect, pretito perfecto in Spain right. versus in Latin America, right? Like it's just different dialects say things differently. I was told that my Spanish was wrong because we do the double direct, the double direct object pronoun. So we say things like lo vi a Juan, right? We put the lo and then we also say a Juan. Ah. And every grammar book will tell you that's wrong. Well, that, uh -huh. I say it and millions of Argentinians say it. So I was gonna say, yeah heard that a lot hmm. yeah so I, I think it's more of a it's just understanding again but we if we have to go back to 
why do we need to know the rules? Right. <laughs> why are we so obsessed with knowing about the language? Let me, let's just start there. You know, that my reaction when you said that, it reminded me when I started teaching French, because in the textbook, talking about preposition, it was saying, oh, you know, you're using a or all for whatever, you know, going to, and you're going to yeah. have different preposition. And then it had Hawaii. And it said, je vais en Hawaii because of the, the syllables and whatever. And I thought, well, I said je vais à Hawaii. So I asked my then professor, who also is French, and I was mm -hmm. like, okay, have I said that wrong my whole life? Am I just completely off? Like, is this, is something happened because now I speak English more often than French? And she said, no, 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 we all say ah as a thing and you can talk to any French person that's what she said and she said you know you've got that difference you have the rule and you have what people do and say <laughs> so then you kind of have that the distinction there and then like we've talked you got the regional dialects too right right so... the, the one thing that I would say maybe we can do a little side note here is I have heard of unfortunate cases uh, not in college, but in high school, middle school, where a heritage learner um, wants to sort of play a joke on the teacher and tells them, but this is how I say it, obviously not being truthful. Mm. Uh, and for the teacher to have that moment of, oh my God, you, you must be right. I guess I'm wrong, you know, kind of thing. I mean, could that happen? yes we're humans and if you're teaching middle schoolers and high schoolers i can't predict what your learners are going to tell you um what I, my 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 goal is not to say believe everything your students say no matter what and everything goes and and you know right free for all i'm not saying that but more of a how are we approaching these conversations and so mm -hmm. you may want to tell them okay i mean if that's how your family say it great um this is how i say it and i'm not saying that one way is better than the other maybe there's right. different ways right. um and just sort of moving on if in the back of your mind you are perhaps doubting the information that the student gave you or even during class you're pretty sure the student is just it's just joking right like they're not telling you something truthful to me that is a conversation for after class to address with the student um more of a why did you feel the need to to say something like that and you know i welcome your input in class but let's just try to make sure that you know we're not confusing your classmates i don't know something where the student understands that it's more about being respectful in class um to me it's a different issue than whether the student tells you i don't know my family say troca great yeah i've heard it a lot it's part of the Spanish, it's part of US Spanish. Mm -hmm. Here we Maybe go. that's Another something word. too, like, we can use technology, yeah. right? We have technology and I just now did it. And I was like, I wonder if I put this sentence in Google, if it will give it to me as something. And as I'm feeding yeah. it and I put Jove, I put the preposition, ah, guess what? It gave me the option of what I was looking for. So that tells me that it is an accepted version of right. it so that's a good way to show our students right maybe you're hearing something on tv or maybe you're hearing that and you're not reconciling it thinking but they're using it wrong then you can go back and look it yes. up and say oh there are the rules and there is the use 
And then it's a good way to have that conversation too, because we had at the at AATSP with Krista, we had in the workshop, somebody who brought up the question and said, one of her students is dating a heritage speaker. And so she would say something and the student would say, well, so-and-so said it's wrong, but it's supposed to be that way, <laughs> you know? And she's right. like, same situation in a way, but it's removed, right? And we said, well, bring up dialects, bring up, you know, like you said, for truck, you've got how many ways that you can say that and they're all correct depending on where you are. So technology can help you push that along. Go, you know what? I've never heard that. Let's look what, what it says in Google and see if there are, we're finding other people. And, you know, your family says it and it could be, you know, I'm sure it's perfectly fine, but because you're diffusing that, you're making them feel valuable, right? And some level. And, and that's actually, I did that with, with my colleagues because I've heard the term <laughs> proficiencia. Mm -hmm. And so- that's what I said. And they're like, um, that is not a word. It's dominio de idiomas. And I was like, really? So at AATSP, I was talking with some, some native speakers and they both said proficiencia. And I was like, whoa, stop the train right here. Let's think <laughs> about this. So then we actually looked it up in word reference and lingui and Spanish dict. And it was like, well, officially dominio de idiomas is, is you know, that's the Spanish way to say it, but with the influence of English in the United States, proficiency is more accepted now, blah, blah, blah. And so you've got it, you know, right there. That's a perfect example of looking something up. Going, hmm, I don't know. Let's check it out. <laughs> right. And yeah, I, yeah, I think, I mean, I think um, beyond class, right? Because the other issue is what happens in assessments, right? And things like that. And I understand that's another concern. I think mm -hmm. if it's your own assessments, you should be just as open as you are in class, right? Mm -hmm. Because you can't say in class, well, it's perfectly fine if your family says it, but on the exam, you have to know this word. Like that's a double standard, double message that we should not be sending, right? So that's right. one thing. Now, I understand that there are exams that perhaps the teachers are concerned about that they cannot control, like the AP exam, maybe Apple, maybe Stamp or mm -hmm. you name it, right? Mm -hmm. um, as far as I know, and, and I think a lot of these companies keep evolving as language evolves too. But as far as I know, um, the, the rating is not based on knowing specific words from specific dialects. And so that shouldn't be a concern. Like, it, you know, I've never heard of a student getting a four instead of a five on the AP exam because they say troca. I mean, it's just, yeah. that's not how the rating is determined. And so, um, the other thing I want to address, if I can, because I think that this is something that I keep hearing since we're talking about dialectal variation, and I think it's time to confront it once and for all and for everybody to be on the same page. It is not about mutual comprehension. Please, I, it just, I, I don't know why students are being told you need to know how to say it the standard way, because otherwise people won't understand you. Never ever in my years speaking Argentinian Spanish, never has anybody told me that, that I need to learn how to say pool or popcorn or whatever the standard way, because otherwise nobody would understand me. Never. Mm -hmm. I never heard a Spaniard. I have lots of Spaniard TAs. <laughs> never. They never heard that. Nobody ever told them. What do you say? Nobody's going to understand you. Nobody. Why are we telling our heritage speakers that? 
why are we telling them don't say troca because nobody's going to understand you right. it is not about comprehension it is simply not it's just a, a like the story in our heads to sort of tell them to convince them that they need to be learning this so-called standard but it is not it is a social construct it is something to perpetuate the the hierarchy of languages that some dialects some varieties are more prestigious than others that is all it is so i would never tell my students don't say troca because people won't understand you yeah. and me, it's easier plenty, too, plenty right? of words in argentinian that i can say right now and you might not understand does that mean that i need to relearn my spanish right well, so it's it not seems... about that it is not about mutual understanding i just want to clarify that if you i used to say that i think back at some point maybe i may have said it and then i started questioning why am i telling the students that people are not going to understand them well and you know i i do that too with my students because they're like how am i supposed to learn spanish if there's 15 different words for straw you know yeah, we ask each like, other we ask each other what are you talking about i'm talking about this great we move well, on we understand exactly each other. That's, what, that's, that's what i tell them you know i say look if you go to england and somebody says oh the lift is over there you might be the lift what do i need a lift for so you talk to that person and yeah. then you realize oh they use lift we say elevator you know and and when you put it in those terms a lot of times in the students were like oh okay i get it and i'm like that's what it is i mean yeah. that's absolutely what it is and a lot of times your conversation you know it's it's negotiating right meaning well, and figuring and, out and the, the other point i want to make before we run out of time is the whole issue with being formal and informal let's not confound register with linguistic variety nobody would ever tell an argentinian that oh you speak informally because I use Argentinian Spanish. Uh -huh. Nobody would tell me that. I'm, I, I've lived here so many years. Nobody has ever told me that I need to say uh, piscina instead of pileta because pileta is informal. Nobody has ever said that to me. Mm -hmm. So why are we telling our heritage speakers that troca or um, aplicar, although aplicar now is in the dictionary, <laughs> um, but all of these terms, you know, that they, that people say is Spanglish, oh, that's yeah. informal. Yes. Where, where did that come from? Who said it was informal? Um, yes. Why is it that some regionalismo, some words that are specific of my region are informal? That's just not how it works, right? It has nothing to do with register or levels of formality. Right. We have in Argentina, we have different words. Some of them are more formal than others, but they're still specific to us that other dialects won't use. Absolutely. And again, it goes back to, you know, asking. Okay, I was in Mexico and I saw a sign that said alberca with an arrow. And I'm like, alberca, I learned that that was a puzzle. I mean, a puzzle, a puddle. And I was like, why would they be giving you an arrow to a puddle? Is it a famous puddle? What is this? And so it's very just, deep puddle. You're going to drown. <laughs> I was like, that's really odd. But, you know, that is the word I learned. And when I was in Spain and, you know, and so then I asked and the guy goes, uh, it's piscina. I was like, oh, all righty. Thank yeah. you. You know, you just bebop on because like, okay, there's a different word. I didn't know, but you, you know, you, you figure it out and you just go, oh, that's what they say here. 
it's it's quite all right. And and uh, in the, what I want to um, emphasize is that to me, U.S. Spanish needs just as much respect and validation as Mexican Spanish, Colombian Spanish, Argentinian Spanish, Costa Rican Spanish. But for some reason, which we know the reasons, right? But for some reason, U.S. Spanish is still viewed as this outsider, it's not a dialect, it doesn't count, it's informal and all of these, you know. The bastard language, that's what it boils down to. It's not recognized by anybody in particular because it, it, it was born out of necessity, right? Because you're talking and then you get some words that are picking up in that language and they're well, created you could you could probably say that all languages sort of were born that way right <laughs> yeah, yeah, right I mean, so yeah. then okay then it's all languages so it's just again yeah. it just shows that it's all this social racial issues mm-hmm. that are really clouding all of this right but yeah. again people are keep going back to but it's not a standard dialect yeah and who decided that let's go back to that it's just all of that we forget all of the layers and all of the the reasons why we perceive certain um regional uh, varieties one way and why we perceive other regional varieties a different way but you know i think and this is just from you know talking with other teachers and whatnot i think that some teachers are kind of intimidated by heritage speakers because they think that, oh, well, they know more than I do because they've grown up speaking it and they sound more, you know, because they've got a better accent and all this kind of stuff. And so they obviously know more than I do. And so I think sometimes there's a little bit of an intimidation factor. And I mean, I've had teachers say, oh, I hate it. I hate third period because I have this heritage speaker. And I feel like, you know, if I make a mistake, they're going to notice. And I'm like, no, they probably aren't. They're just focusing on what you're saying. And, but I think that is also an issue. And, and I think when we realize that, you know, there's lots of different words. So they use a different word that you didn't know. You just say, huh, I didn't know that. I'll write that down to look and check on it later. You know, it's perfectly okay that you don't know all the words that they know. But I mean, it, to you- me, that, that boils down to what is our role and do students understand what our role is and do we understand what our role is? Um, I think for a lot of teachers, which I understand, right? You think of teacher, who's the teacher? What does the teacher do, right? Uh, and we think of teaching as an imparting knowledge, right? Like you are the source, <laughs> the main source of knowledge or you are the authority of knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think we, we just need to rethink all of that and be like, I'm here to create opportunities to communicate. I'm not the only source of knowledge. I'm not the, the one that determines correct and incorrect. I am just one more speaker of the language. And this is why maybe you want to remove all the labels and there's not native speakers and second language speakers and all of it. We're just speakers of the language. Yes. And we all make mistakes. I mistakes in English all the time and I still teach classes in English. Um, Drew, I don't teach ESL, but I'm just saying like, you know, I make mistakes in Spanish and I'm a native speaker of Spanish. And I just like, you know, we, we kind of move on. Um, I, you know, I understand, I don't want to minimize how teachers feel. I think it's a very, very valid concern, Uh, but maybe one way of um, mitigating is by having these conversations of what is our role? 
Mm -hmm. um, and who are we? If we are all speakers of the language and there's not this, you're the authority and you're the one that tells me if it was right or wrong. And just if we remove all of that and it's more of the, I'm here to create opportunities to communicate and use the language, mm -hmm. you are doing that. You don't have to speak perfectly in order to have opportunities to communicate and use the language. So um, I think it's just more of the rethinking the the role of the teacher and what you're doing. And yeah, it's, I think it's going to happen that some learners know more than you do, even in content classes. Absolutely. You, you might know more than your professor. <laughs> That's okay. You know what I mean? It's just, we don't know it all. We just don't know it all and, and it should be okay. But you have to change the way that they're thinking of you as the teacher, that you're not there to be the source of knowledge. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that too, um, I thought it was interesting what you had said earlier, because I was thinking in terms of culture, because so many times, you know, the teachers think, oh, there's such a great source of cultural knowledge. Maybe they don't want to share that. And we need to be respectful of that. Yes. And I guess I hadn't really, I hadn't really thought of that. But on the flip side, if they, you know, do share something that maybe is contrary to what you've read or you experienced or you taught, I mean, you don't need to just dismiss that saying, no, that's not right either, because, you know, there are certain cultural, I mean, you know, you've got like universal issues and culture specific. And so it's like, well, and everybody is different, right? Even with, even with your food schedule, um, we have this activity I know in, in our book where they went out and interviewed people in different countries about their eating schedule right mm -hmm. and so like in costa rica there the, the this guy was like oh well we eat breakfast anywhere from 6 a.m to 11 a.m that's huge that's a huge time frame there's like whereas everybody's no we eat breakfast at eight well maybe maybe not and it you know it's to kind of recognize well this is general but it doesn't apply to everyone in that particular culture and so you can't really discount you know, a student's experience just because it's outside of what you learned about that particular country. And I think we need to be very careful about those kinds of things as well. It's not just about language, but, you know, culturally as well. Well, and we keep saying, and I know that I said it too, right, because we're used to saying things like, you know, Argentinian Spanish or Argentinian culture. We're so used to associating a country with a culture or a country with a variety. And we know that it doesn't work that way, right? Cultures and languages don't abide by geographical limits. So, I, I, you know, that's, that's the other thing to keep in mind, right? So not to generalize just based on nationality. Nationality has nothing to do with language or with culture. Right. Um, but yeah, culture definitely has um, individual and collective layers uh, mm -hmm. that we need to understand and respect and help the students understand. Um, it, one activity we, Maris and I have in our book that's coming out, is um, to sort of help them, even if you use the typical little text that tells them how Christmas is celebrated in these countries, right? Like, and we've all seen them, mm -hmm. um, to kind of reflect on, but how do you celebrate it? So if you had to write the same text about the US, what would it say? And then how does that reflect what you and your family or your loved ones do? 
right. uh, and to understand that maybe some things are going to be different and maybe some things are going to be right. So we have these individual and collective layers um, mm -hmm. to culture mm -hmm. um, that are much more complex than we think and that they evolve, right? It's not a matter of, you know, it stays the same forever and ever in the life of an individual. But um, yeah, I, I mean, in my interactions with teachers, I've never heard of teachers questioning the, the culture side of heritage speakers, um, I've heard much more frequently the, the linguistic side of it, right? Mm -hmm. um, especially in terms of this, like, well, but they need to learn the proper words or they need to learn the standard or they, right? It's always um, with a view of um, trying to um, change sometimes the way they talk uh and and usually from a perspective of again this standard that is like a unicorn right so um yeah i that, that's what i heard i haven't heard too many teachers talk about um the the culture side of doubting right doubting the, the culture value of uh what hages learners have to share it's true i have heard of teachers sort of making them like the show and tell Right. Oh, since your family is from Mexico, tell us all about how you celebrate Day of the Dead. Right. The student might not feel comfortable telling you that. And so I just more of these. Let's keep in mind what they're comfortable with sharing and what they may not be um, willing that to goes share. Back or to they may not want to be in the spotlight. Though, right? right. Sorry. Sorry. That goes back to relationship with students, though, right? Yes. Because you you establish that relationship, and then you get to know that student and see what they're comfortable with. Maybe yes. they don't want to share; it's private to them; it's their own thing, or maybe they're like ready to share with the world. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yes. 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 It is definitely about the relationship and the environment um, of, of the classroom. So um, this takes time. This is not a simple, uh, they are in the syllabus. It says everybody feel welcome and safe. We're done. Okay, let's now share. Like, it's just that we know it doesn't work that way, right? It, it takes time and it takes that, the, it, it's almost like getting in a pool, right? And you kind of test the waters first and be like, is this kind of a safe place for me to be sharing um, and allowing them that time and you know to to decide what they want to share and what they don't i mean personally me if i were in a class and i was asked to be you know oh you're from argentina tell us all about el tango i'm sorry i have no clue like no clue. <laughs> whatever wikipedia can tell you that's what i can tell you because i don't know so what i what i always wonder is does that make them feel bad about their own identity does that make me less of an argentinian right like so that's why I'm like, I would not do it to my students to to be assuming that they want to share something just based on what likely they know since their family is from there. Like, it just let's not make any of those assumptions. If well, they but want to see, share, I they guess, can share, and if not, that's okay. I guess I was just thinking because, you know, Sandrine, again, her kids had that experience. Her son was like, well, in France, we do blah, blah, blah at my grandparents' house. No, you're wrong. This is what they do in France. And he's like, but oh. my grandma's French. Oh, she did it with yeah. both of them. Yeah. Yeah. But you're like, but my grandma's French and she said this. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. No, they, they, she did that to them all the time. It was, it was kind of ridiculous. But then what happened, and it's funny because you were talking about it earlier, right, with a student who um, might hear a word and this and that and finding fault with the teacher. 
because of those type of relationship, my kids were looking for every single fault that she was making. And then they would come back to me. I mean, they would even text me during class and go, oh my gosh, she just said that. She just used this that way. And that's wrong, right? And I'm like, yeah, it's wrong, but you can't do that. (laughs) She's a teacher. You cannot confront her. But, you know, I had that background. So I was like, no, you got to respect it. You know, it's wrong, but you can't confront her on that. But that's kind of what it built up. I mean, she's also the teacher who asked for opinions and then told them they were wrong. So let's let's not get to that one. <laughs> but um, as we wrap it up, wrapping it up. Um, so when you're starting your term and you notice you have some students, you think probably thinking, OK, I think that's going to be a, nat- uh, a heritage learner or a native speaker of the language who is at the wrong level or, you know, that's been stuck here or sometimes we don't see them coming. Right. What are your first steps? Because we do want to help teachers to see how do they negotiate that whole thing from the get go. Yeah. That is a very hard question, again, because we're all under very different circumstances. Mm -hmm. My circumstances allow me um, to have a conversation with a student and tell them, this is what I would suggest. I think you would get much more out of this course. Uh, But again, the students are free to choose to do whatever they want with their classes and their schedule. I understand that's very different in in other schools where there may not be choices and where the students might not be able to choose. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I I am hesitant to give like one specific way of handling it because it's going to depend so much on your institution and your district. Um, Even in college, there's institutions that allow you to drop students. we cannot do that. There's institutions where they are required to be taking the HITIS track. We cannot do that. So it, it depends a lot on what you can do from an administrative side. Um, so if there are choices for the students, I think they should be offered. Um, and I think they should be allowed, uh, they should be, um, given the information they need to to make a choice right that it shouldn't be a matter of you're not welcome in this course or what are you doing here um it should be more a matter of like for example with my students i approach it more in the sense of i ask them so how do you feel about working with classmates who may be at a lower level um do you get bored does that make you uncomfortable um, how do you feel about, um, you know, discussing certain topics? Because some of the topics that we have in the different sections are different. Like, are you interested in those topics? You may want to choose that. Um, and, and also from a practical standpoint, I'm like, you know, you could probably just take this class and then do the major or minor faster, right? Like sometimes you have to talk to them and help them understand from every angle and understanding where they're coming from as students. Mm-hmm. But again, in our case, they do have the, the choice to stay wherever they, they are if mm-hmm. they want to. Um, I think at the very least, the, the student, if, if there is a choice and the student decides to stay, um, they need to understand what the course is designed for and who it is for. And um, they need to understand that maybe some things are going to be too easy, that maybe some things might be a little boring. Um, and I think a lot of the times, at least in my conversations with heritage speakers, is going back to what Krista said at the beginning, it goes back to those internalized 
negative self-perceptions. I don't speak Spanish properly. I need to learn the grammar. Then let's talk about it. Why do you feel you need to learn the grammar? Um, and then I tell them, this is what you're probably going to be doing a lot in this course. So mm -hmm. I don't know. Do you really need to know just the conjugation of present tense? Like, cause you're using it right now with me and you're using it perfectly fine. So maybe, you know, sometimes it's just the getting to the, why do you want to take this course? Um, but having a conversation with them, not making assumptions, right? So not making the assumption of what are you doing here? This is too easy for you. Like that sometimes almost feels like you're not welcome. Uh, mm -hmm. It shouldn't be that way. It should be more about, let's just talk about it and let's find the best path for you. Um, uh, but if there is no choice, that is really difficult. I wish I could give you a good answer for that. It goes back to what we talked about in the beginning about differentiation and, and talking to administrators. And you need to start thinking of bigger solutions. The, the Band-Aid of let's do different assignments or a different reading here and there, sure, you have to be thinking of a broader curricular change to help more students down the line and not just stay always with the, um, just a quick solution. Um, yeah. I like that. I like what you mentioned is a conversation with students. I think that's important at all level. Um, even if it's in high school or other levels, having that conversation with them and go, Hey, so you're in French one or Spanish one. And I know you've been using it at home. Like, what, let's talk about what your level actual is. And you're right. My hands are tied. Your hands are tied. We can't move you out of here. So here's what we can expect. And then establish those ground rules. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I like that. Let's establish that relationship. And yeah, the, the whole thing you were talking about, let's not make you into the student helper. That's not the point. So let's, let's figure it out and let's have that conversation that if I start leaning too hard on that way, you remind me and say, hey, I'm not your student helper. Right. And one of the one of the questions that a lot of times we don't ask students, and I'm, I'm guilty of that, I don't always ask them, um, is um, the, the how do you feel or what is your preference in terms of working with somebody who you think is probably more advanced than you, somebody who is less advanced and may need some help from you? Um, and I have a book chapter coming out um, a, in a survey that I did with second and um, heritage speakers. And it was really, really interesting. The second language learners feel comfortable with somebody at the same or lower level, the heritage speakers, same or higher level. Mm -hmm. Uh, that they don't um, particularly enjoy uh, working with somebody of lower level, whereas the second language learners are okay with that. Uh, they feel intimidated if they work with somebody higher level. Again, general trends. I'm not saying That's every single one of them felt that way, but those were the that was a clear contrast between the two groups. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's super interesting. And then yes. one thing, final thing, we always ask, and you don't, if you don't have one, that's fine. But we, we do um, aha moments, you know, um, and, and it can be anything recent or just like a big aha moment in your career. Do you have some, one thing that you can think of that you were like, 
oh, wow, that really made me think or made me change what I do. I mean, do you, is there anything that you can think of? Um, so the main one that I can think of is taking the ACFL OPI uh, training and becoming an OPI certified rater, uh, certified tester or interviewer. Um, that definitely was a wow aha moment because a lot of what I was expecting out of my students was based on sort of more traditional instruction where it's like write a paragraph okay by spanish three you should write two paragraphs and here i am realizing that you know if they're novice high intermediate low um it, it, we should not be expecting them to do paragraphs i'm sorry if you hear my dog barking in the background <laughs> so i minded it earlier okay it's all good <laughs> um so yeah th that to me was a big eye-opening in terms of um recalibrating what i was expecting out of my students mm -hmm. um and then the other it wasn't an aha moment in that moment but I think later on, related to the topic of heritage uh, language instruction and dialects and all of that, um, I uh, when I was really young here in the U.S. and um, beginning beginning to look into what does it take to become a Spanish teacher, I remember calling a program and the person on the other line in a university um, told me that I would not be able to use Argentinian Spanish, meaning I would not be able to use vos or pronounce things like Argentinians do because students would probably not understand me. And, you know, at the time being so young and naive, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I guess that makes sense, right? Because mm -hmm. we speak mm -hmm. differently. Um, and ever since then, the way I talk to my students is in the most weird way you can think of because I use two and mm -hmm. I try to keep it as neutral, although there's no neutral, but oh, I no. definitely do not talk to them like I would talk to friends, family members, uh -huh. you know, as an Argentinian. Um, and it's funny because my students in the evaluations from time to time, they say, please speak to us like an Argentinian. <laughs> Um, so I always think back at that moment, I, you know, I don't know um, whether there was any truth to what that professor said that students would not understand me. Um, I think it's true that probably in the novice levels, you have to adjust a lot of how you talk to so mm -hmm. that students understand you. Um, but it, it, it's unfortunate the repercussions that Common had on the rest of my career uh, yeah. and I look back at that and I always try to be very very careful about telling a fellow instructor like your students won't understand you um, I think that there are different ways of approaching that and being like how can you help the students understand you more but not in terms of your regional dialect is the problem right yeah, um yeah. so i think um i always think back at that and and i think it's related to what we've been talking about you know making yourself uh, telling the learners that they need to speak a certain way so people understand you i think it's not uh the right way of approaching it we need to understand where that where that comes from and and just think, i mean that one comment mm -hmm. and how that one comment just has affected 
your yeah. you know for years so and i think I, in a way yeah in a way i relate to when the students the hitter speakers feel like no i don't speak proper spanish if somebody told you whether it was a family member or a teacher at some point told you that's not a word that doesn't exist nobody's going to understand you uh it's, it sticks with you yeah, yeah. So you were listening to a podcast. <laughs> no, you haven't. You said you were behind. Well, I was going to say, have you not been paying attention? <laughs> hey, look, I have COVID brain. Okay. That COVID brain fog is real. All right. Oh, it, I don't it, know if I'm coming or going, so it's all good. <laughs> so, but no, actually, I have been listening to podcasts some and had some like completely like mind-blowing moments on various things. Um, one I listened to, actually, I'm going to bring it up. It's not my aha moment. And I will look it back up and add that link into the show notes because part of it, it was with a guest and they were talking about SEL and some resources and other things. And it's free resources for teachers. And um, I think it has resources across the board, K through 12. Mm -hmm. So I need to go back and um, see what it was and add that to the show notes. Mm -hmm. But my aha moment came from being back in the classroom and um, struggling to, you know, get my students to get their school brains back on of the, you know, <laughs> we're not talking whenever we want to. We're not just getting out of our seat and walking out the door or going to visit a friend and not talking when the teacher's talking and, you know. Of course, they're third graders, so they're wired that way. As soon as their feet move, right. their mouth move, or any part of their body for that matter, you know, their ears could be moving and they have to talk. But um, my aha moment was some of these kids have not been in a physical classroom since March of 2020. Has been mm -hmm. over 18 months. Right. And that's something, you know, that's been said and like whatever. Put it in perspective, my students are third graders. That means they was the middle of first grade when right? they last were in the classroom. So I mean, that's wild. I know. So classroom behavior, they're first graders. They're not third graders. Right. And that was like, wow. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, and I was talking to Emily one day earlier in the week, and um, I said something to her, some of the crazy stories that I already have coming out of the classroom and I said but you know and I told her that and she kind of had a moment she went wow <laughs> I said yes we're all having that little wow kind of thing so yeah so that's why my principal keeps saying give yourself grace teachers mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and second grader teachers second grade teachers imagine that the last those kids were in class was kindergarten I know I know it's mind-boggling that's mind-boggling completely well and you know and I've said it before too you know our poor children um Benjamin and Wesley have yet to have a normal college year yeah I mean COVID hit their freshman year last year was wackadoodle and they've started mm -hmm. out crazy again this year yeah so I mean you know even having a normal college experience is <laughs> crazy yeah. crazy yeah I know it well yeah. my aha moment I guess you know 
um, <clears throat> with having COVID, I, I did not get my classes all in order the way that I, um, you know, usually do and have them all ready and organized. And I mean, I even talking about COVID brain, I even scheduled my live orientation. I scheduled the 101 and 201 at the same time. Oh, fun. Yeah. That, but, you know, the students were so gracious um, mm -hmm. and that, you know, I was like, you know, these kids really, I mean, the majority of our students are just fabulous because they have all been just so understanding and, um, you know, they all will email me, hey, Dr. Chambliss, I hope you're feeling better. Um, I noticed a mistake here and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, and they're just, they're so gracious and nice about it because mm -hmm. they know yeah. that, um, and as some of them, especially if they had me previously, they're like, this is so not her, but you know, and they'll, they've just, they've been so lovely uh, mm -hmm. about all of it. And the emails I've gotten from the students, oh no, I hope you're feeling better and just, you know, it's just been so nice to feel the concern from students, you know, right. because I think a lot of times, especially at the university, because sometimes we do, we do have such big classes or whatever. Everybody thinks there's no relationships being built, but um, in language we have, um, we're fortunate that we have a cap of 25, which is still mm -hmm. a lot of students, but I talked with somebody who um, teaches at a university in California and she has like 45 students. Oof. I know, right? Wow. I'm thinking, how is that even possible? Um, but you all know, all in once, all in the same classroom? Yes, all in wow. the same. I know, it's insane. And so, you know, I think that the relationships that you build, like I said, especially my 201 and my 206, a lot of those students have had me before. And so mm -hmm. they've just been so gracious and so understanding. And they're like, Dr. Chambliss, I think this is where I even put the 201 syllabus review in the 206 class. <laughs> I mean, that's where my brain was, you know, when I was, I mean, and I, th I was like, you know what, I had 101 fever trying to do this. So, I mean, it makes perfect sense. That I would screw and up. let's add the one where you took my document and put it all in Spanish. <laughs> That's right. See, see, as I'm telling you, it was just a mess. You know, the sad thing is, I looked at it and did not notice it because the first slide had not changed. And so I shared it with somebody. And then you messaged me later that day, and I was like, oh, it is. And then I was like, oh, yeah, it is. Well, see, so, you know, you really shouldn't be surprised when I put the 201 syllabus review in the 206 class that I did. I mean, I'm, I just feel like I was not responsible for anything I did that week. But anyway, so my aha moment was, you know, the whole thing that relationships with your students really do matter. And, you know, when you extend grace and understanding to them, I mean, you're going to get it back. Yeah. You are going to get it back. And I really did get it this last, um, you know, week and a half. And um, I'm just very thankful for it. And when you when you're upfront with them, a lot of people are like, well, it's my life. My life is private. I don't need to share with them. And to mm -hmm. a certain extent, yes. But um, I know I was talking to my Winthrop students and I said, hey, so I know there is nothing on Blackboard. And, you know, it's not even published or anything. And I said, did that, did y'all go? Did y'all notice that? And they're like, yeah, we were wondering. And I said, I'm very sorry, but I didn't get access to it until Monday afternoon. And that was a class on Wednesday. 
And I said, so there is that. And then there's the fact that I teach full-time at elementary school, I teach third graders. And they're like, oh yeah, okay. And I said, but I'm promising you, I will, I'm working on it. I will try to have it by, you know, whatever time I'm working on it. And they're like, oh, okay. And at some point I said something else about the UAB student. And one of my students raised her hand and she goes, she just kind of scratched her head. And she goes, so you have three jobs? <laughs> and I looked at her and I was like, well, yeah, I kind of want to say, well, I have it a little bit more because I'm also a praxis writer and uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm and I'm doing that. But those are not the regular stuff like this is. And I could see just the look on her face like, wow. So already, you know, she's kind of making a mental note. OK, this woman, she's got a lot on her plate. Mm -hmm. So she, there might be mistakes, you know, whatever. And there is already like a little note of understanding as to some of the stuff you know, right. whether if I hadn't said anything to them, I had not made it and then eventually published, it would have been like, oh my gosh, like get a hold of yourself, get right? it going, you exactly. know, that kind of exactly. stuff. But they were like, oh, it's fine. And I told them I never do syllabus on day one anyway. So when you do have that upfront and you write that grace and that relationship, they understand it's so much better. Right. And they're like, we're all struggling. We're all in the struggle boat. We got it. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, and that is just the truth. We all on that struggle bus right now. <laughs> that is a big one. Yeah. So, okay. Well, so what was your small victory and your aha moment? Listeners, share with us. Go ahead, put it on Twitter, email us, contact us. That's right. We want to hear from you at stepintomondays at gmail.com. You've got our website where you can find interesting info you know step into mondays.com it's not hard <laughs> so <laughs> yes, so find us and you know let us know what you're thinking if there's an episode or topic that you'd like us to talk about i mean shoot us a line and we'll be happy to to see what we can find out about it absolutely i know somebody recently made a request on pronunciation and we've uh -huh. talked about it we might eventually do one but i think yeah. pronunciation gets such in integrated into everything so much yeah but we can we can yeah we can certainly look at that we're gonna look at that but um yeah so we will talk to you in two weeks that's right hasta lunes a lundi. Mm -hmm.